It has been two years since the trade galaxy was shaken to its core by the actions of a single, mismatched, multi-species crew. Whatever you think of the heroes of Yentao, also known as the Space Squad, one thing is certain. All eyes are watching for whatever they do next. Hey guys, it's Paige, your DM and local potato enthusiast. I'm just here to let you know that we had a technical difficulty with this episode, which means two things. One, this episode is a little shorter than usual, and two, everything from around 15 minutes in will be a recap of what the squad did before Adobe ate our files. <sighs> We've treated it more like a storytelling opportunity than just like a bullet point list though, so please don't worry about it being this kind of dull monotone lowdown. Anyway, that's it from me, so let's jump into the action as the squad comes face to face with a certain Mr. Bickering. Lorelei, I think your foot catches, because these stairs are super uneven, this is not an expertly made passage. I think your foot catches and you fall against one of the beams. Ah, fuck. And the beam cracks and then a, a rain of silk comes hissing down and ahead of you the voices stop. So, they heard us. Oh yeah, they, they totally heard you. Um, Corel, in that case, is just going to start dashing in their direction. Oh, fuck. <laughs> so Corel just hightails it away from the rest of you. What did the rest of you do? I'll be like, okay then, and start keeping pace with Corel. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll try as well. I leisurely stroll towards the... No, I run as well, I run as well. Faraday? I'll follow. Um, How far away from us are they? Uh, you don't know yet, but for the fact that you could hear the murmuring of their voices, they're probably not too far away. Okay, no, I just follow. Okay. Uh, yeah, you chase after the rest of them. Karel, you're the first to dash, so uh, you're the first to plunge ahead down this passageway as it suddenly narrows from being about ten foot wide to five or less. It suddenly becomes very narrow and uneven. The ceiling closes in on you. You're having to, like, run with your head bent. I'm covered with a species of tunnelers. This is... Yep, this is perfect. Your profile's tilting forwards, Corel, as you kind of adjust to this, like, almost tunnel-like environment. You're, like, having to hop over the huge bundle of cables going under your feet. And so you're the first as well, Corel, when the tunnel hooks sharply 90 degrees to the left and opens up abruptly on a much larger chamber. Okay. Do I see anyone? You see a large digger off to your right with a spiraled, like, um, drill bit on the front. You see two sets of large, like, um, large LED lamps beaming bright white light directly into your face. And standing by those lamps is a human man holding an Araswati very tightly by the shoulder. To the right of that duo is an enormous hexagonal golden door. As you see that door, the rest of the party skid around the corner and are able to kind of see, like, in snatches of this over Corel. What do you do? Corel, Corel, could you move, please? We're all stuck in the tunnel. Hey, oh. <laughs> the five of you spill out into the chamber. Could I take a perception check, please? 22. 3. 14. <laughs> uh, 23. Laurelie and Corel, you both um, dart out of this tunnel and Corel you instantly realize that that Araswati is a certain Dr. Tesharali Silverglass. You don't know the human man, but I think you can guess. 
Herb bickering. Do you say that out loud, Corel? Yeah. The human man like, smiles this very curled smile and just says, Who's asking? Oh, actually, I can guess. An apelter, a little white Araswati, two humans, and I'm assuming you're... Also a human, Angus McSmith. <laughs> That's very funny. Um, I thought he, I thought he might buy it. <laughs> no. <laughs> now you, I actually like. He says to you, Schlepp, because you're the one who sold uh, her horns, right? Mm, it was a group decision. I was the one to do the money. Why are you still doing the voice? I'm, st- <laughs> I'm panicking. Uh, he like claps softly and is like, "No, no, bravo, bravo. That was rather inspired." Don't like you. You don't need to. Please, please, please stop, Schlurp. I, I'm trying. Are you saying I'm trying or I'm crying? <laughs> Both. <laughs> oh, Leonie's dead. It's the voice. It's the voice. And Teb Bickering says, I think we can both help each other. As he's saying all this, Lorelei is going to look Dr. Silverglass in the face and try and gauge how she's feeling. And because Lorelei, being Lorelei, very much just wants to bring the pain to this man. <laughs> um, so she's going to look at Dr. Silverglass because while she wants to bring the pain, she doesn't know if, because he's touching her shoulder. But she doesn't know if he's rigged something up to make it. If we hurt him, it's going to hurt her too. Okay, uh, you, you're trying to catch uh, Tesh's eyes, mm. uh, Lorelei. Uh, Tesh kind of, she looks terrified. Her eyes are very wide. You can see like the whites all the way around her irises. But like she keeps glancing down, like trying to catch her eyes and then glancing down at herself. Perception check or insight? Uh, I'm going to say insight. 20, dirty. She's frantically holding two fingers against her right leg out of his line of sight. Is that like code for explosives? Code for... I'm going to say the look of terror in her eyes is very keen. And she's not just a doctor. She's also a mother. Oh shit, they have her kids. I'm going to kill this guy. Yeah, let's kill this guy. Uh, (laughs) Please, Lorelei is going to bring the sun down on his head before he gets... She's so... Fucking angry. What you're saying is get in line, basically. Yeah, get in line. line, At which point Lorelei is going to do what she was originally going to do. She's going to get up and dust herself off and look around the entire room for some form of comms unit. Um, At this point, you've had the chance to look around the room already, so I'm just going to say that you don't visibly see any noticeable comms unit. The only one you can see is the one on Teb's wrist. And how might we be able to do that? Mr. Bickering. A friend of mine tells me you'd quite like to get through a door. You're searching for answers about the same things, I'd wager, that our mutual friend, Miss Goldenhorn, is. Strange dreams? Visions? Voices? Maybe. Or we're just too curious for our own good. Either way, you want through the door. We hear that you haven't been able to get through. No, I haven't. It's rather annoying, actually. And he, like, 
appears calm, but his his hand like squeezes too hard on Tesha's shoulder. So why do you think you you're suddenly in a position to help us? Oh, I can I can help you by not uh, harming a little hair on precious Doctor Silverglass's head. All well and good. What's it got to do with the door? I believe you might be able to open it, as much as it wounds my pride to admit. Open the door and she won't get hurt. I have to admit, I wasn't banking on the space squad being my solution to the door problem, but if you've shown up, I might as well take advantage of the situation. I hate when he says it. Like yes. I think it's like normally good when I say it, but like when he says it, it just sounds so no, bad. No, it's good. It's catching on. I don't... I, branding. This, this isn't how I want branding to spread. Branding. So, just to check, when he says you, is is he referring to all of us? Yes. Okay. Okay, then. I've got small hands. Faraday's got a brain the size of the universe. Point us in the right direction. He shrugs one shoulder and nods, like, kind of gestures grandiosely with his free hand to the, to the golden hexagonal door. How do we know that you're going to keep your word? He just smiles at you. Well, I'm guessing you want what's behind there just as much as we do, so... I am going to glance over at Corel. I'm going to do a perception check to see if Corel is thinking about using their powers on the door. <laughs> that would be insight. Insight. 17. Okay, Corel, are you thinking about using your special knowing powers on the door? Not on the door. If there's a sense that Krell might be using their power at some point today, it's not going to be on the door. Um, what Krell is going to do, though, in this moment, is to use their insightful fighting on uh, Teb. And that's just going to be me doing an insight check on him. And Oh, it's insight contested by deception. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I rolled an at one. So basically, that's going to mean if it comes to blows, I won't need advantage to, to do sneak attack. Oh, Lorelei is going to pull on Faraday's trouser leg and try and get her to walk up to the door or like on the side of the door that is opposite to where Teb is. Uh, as we go past, I would like to use message to talk to Tesh. Okay. Where are they? I don't know. I just, I know that he has, he showed me pictures. They have pictures of them. They're in a grey room with one black window. I don't know anything else. Okay, we're going to get out of this and we're going to find them and it's going to be fine. And she kind of like, you kind of see her steal herself and she goes, okay. I'm just checking. I assume bickering is keeping a pretty tight hold on her. Oh yeah, he is not leaving her. I probably saw Corel like doing their thing because like you had to do a check on them, didn't you? I was just sort of sizing them up. Okay, I think would it be fair to see? I saw Corel sizing them up. I think it's fair to say like most of you are sizing each other up. It's a fair assumption to make. Okay. Um, I think I look over Corel and I use message and I say. I have a way to get him to let her go if you wanted to do something to him. There's a slight pause. If you want to make that move, I'm game. Uh, as we're walking up, 
Lorelei, when we get to the door, which I'm assuming Faraday is following, uh, Lorelei, like, pretends to point at something near the floor to get Faraday to kneel down. Mm-hmm. And says as quietly as possible to Faraday, uh, we need to get the comms unit off his wrist. And we need to get it to Schlup so Schlup can pretend to be him and get them to let the children go. I'll stand back up and I'll go over and stand like 10 feet away and I'll look at Tesh and be like, it would be great to know exactly what you already know so we have a so we have a starting point so i think i'm just having this conversation and maybe as i'm doing it being quite like gesticulating and getting a little bit closer and obviously like trying to seem like i'm really getting into the conversation could you run me a performance check 20. Dirty. Nice. Okay. Nice. With the 20, you are quite convincing and not having any underhanded motives uh, to gesticulate in that such a way. And so Teb allows you to kind of come a bit closer. He stays fixed with one hand on Tesh's shoulder, but he will not just look straight at Lorelei. Lorelei, he'll look, I'm going to say he looks at Lorelei for long stretches of seconds, but then will glance up at the rest of you. Is the comms on the shoulder that's touching Tesh? On the hand that's touching Tesh? Or no, it's on his free hand. Okay. Uh, Laura, at this point, Lorelei is just waiting for something to happen. I'm afraid it's at this point that we lose our recording and hand over to our narrative recap, built from our collective memories as well as the lovely Leonie's extensive notes. We've really poured ourselves into making this episode work, and we hope that you enjoy it. Deep beneath dry earth and dusty skies, in a dank cavern striped white by harsh artificial standing lamps, seven beings are caught in an uneasy standoff. Trapped under one of Teb Bickering's pale, bony hands, Tess shivers. Her long throat bobs on a nervous swallow. There's a pale golden reflection caught in the lens of her glasses, of the door that made all of this happen. The moment stretches, and then it breaks. Several things happen at once. Schlurp, still in the guise of definitely an ordinary human man, Angus McSmith, seems to suddenly swell in place. Their head lifts, their shoulders broaden, and the air around them crackles with tension and power. Pointing, their disguises hair rippling in a non-existent wind, they thunder, Grovel! The air between their pointed finger and Teb begins to sizzle with energy. Borderline visible threads of light pop and twist and writhe. Sweat beads on Teb's cheeks and forehead. His hand on Tesha's shoulder is a vice, and then it eases. His mouth starts to curl. He starts to lift his other arm towards his face, and this arm has a comms unit strapped to the wrist. Lorelei is the first to react. She darts across ten feet of no man's land in two quick, four-footed bounds, and then kicks off the ground and launches herself directly at Teb's arm, intercepting his wrist before it can reach his mouth. He swears, like, fuck, and staggers back, grappling for her, but Lorelei's usual composure is missing in action, and in its absence she lets out a strangled, furious shriek and sinks her teeth into his wrist. Red blood blots dark on white fur. Teb's hand seizes on Tesha's shoulder, driving her to her knees. Lorelei's scream rings discordant and ear-splittingly loud against the cavern's rough-cut stone walls. Its lingering sound covers the clattering scuttle of Corel's legs as they circle around behind Teb and press one of their daggers into his spine. 
Just like that, the explosion of movement is over. Teb releases Tesh, who scrambles away so fast she almost falls and sinks to his knees with his arms held out at his sides. He is strange in defeat, upright and proud and still exuding an air of control. Teb Bickering stares into the five scowling faces of the heroes of Yentao and smiles. An awful, insincere thing that catches on his face like a sleeve trapped in a door. And then, just for a second, his entire being flickers and he says, Neat trick. I can do that too. Shit, says Lorelei, detangling herself from Teb's arm. Her bloodied mouth pinches and turns down. Schlurp takes a step back, Angus's broad face slipping for a second to expose the cold metal behind it. Wait, what? Lorelei's eyes narrow. She reaches over her shoulder for her staff hilt, and with a hum of cool white light, extends its two halves. That's not Teb. Corel's arms jolt as they twist towards her, and not Teb winces and jerks forwards, away from the blade still tucked against his spine. Well, then who is this? I'm Arnold, says Arnold, his smile inching wider on his pale and pointed face, and Lorelei and Corel both shift as if to speak, only to be silenced by the sudden squeal of Arnold's wrist con, its cry ear-splittingly loud in the tense quiet of the cavern. Lorelei grabs it in an instant, wrenching it from Arnold's arm, hard enough to make him grimace. Nothing happens for a moment. The comms unit continues to wail. Then Schlurp steps forwards, the disguise unravelling as they go, and takes it from her with a single bared metal hand. The rest of them are silent as they pick up the call. How's the weather down there? Schlurp's hand flexes on the comms unit. There's no time to think, and certainly no time to see Arnold's sudden smile. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's great, actually, could you... A hiss of garbled static. Then, the call drops. Schlurp stares at the comm, their joints beginning to faintly rattle. Fuck, says Lorelei. It was a password. Somewhere above them, something roars, and somewhere much closer by, the world erupts with white light. When they find Teb, Faraday does not attack him. When they see his hand on Tesh, she also does not attack him. When the others make plans and then make moves, she still does not attack. She has more important things to do. If the others are flash fire, quick thinking and fast acting and short-lived, then Faraday is a coal fire, a simmering thing that burns long and slow and terrible. The others go for Teb, four overpowered fools against one thin, bony-elbowed man. Faraday? Faraday goes for the door. Golden and hexagonal as it is, it almost resembles a single cell of honeycomb. Its edges are seized in place by time, locked tight by stalactites and stalagmites that have long since joined to form thick, pearlescent pillars between the floor and the ceiling. It has no elaborate adornments or accompaniments. Its only real features are its colour, its shape, and the pale gold diamond etched at its centre. It's only as Faraday approaches that she realises the door has a fourth feature. A kind of ambient energy, a presence almost like that of a living being. Faraday watches the door, and it is almost like being watched in turn. The Corsairs blasted it, but it did not break. 
They tried to pick it, but found no lock. They cast spells, but they broke upon its surface like water. She is just one person. What can she do differently? <laughs> well, there is something she can do that the Corsairs would never stoop to. Faraday kneels, bends her head, and asks for help. Behind her, she can hear feet shifting and teeth biting, but she pays it no mind. All of herself is in this moment, in the asking, in the reaching out when usually all she wants to do is run. She sinks into it, feeling her power rise beneath her skin like water to a rolling boil, and just like that, the cavern is lost to her senses. She hears nothing, sees nothing, not even the squeal of the comms call or the train wreck that follows. When she gets her answer, it's strange. She's expecting him is the thing. She's expecting white bone antlers strung with cobwebs, a cloak of liquid darkness, empty eyes that brim with starlight. She is expecting the phantom that has followed her for five years and journeys that have taken her all across the galaxy. What she isn't expecting is for the world to tear open in front of her. It is a yawning mouth of dazzling white emptiness and then an insectoid figure steps through it and it is gone. The world rings with a lingering roar. Faraday swallows. It takes her a few, too long seconds to understand what she is seeing. Because an Epelta is standing in front of her. They are a, a worker like Corel, tailless and heavy clawed and robust. They could almost be any worker back in New Analu if it wasn't for the raw magic curling and crackling in the air around them thick enough to taste. Faraday swallows again. Her mouth has gone dry. We need help, she says, and the Apelta stares down at her with four scarlet eyes. I don't know. I don't know who you are, and I know there will be a cost to whatever aid you can give us. But if that cost is what we have to pay for saving the galaxy, then it's worth it. So we need to get through that door. Can you help us? Behind her, someone's foot scuffles. Faraday clenches her hands into fists and waits. Epelda don't smile, at least. Not in the way that a human or a Namazir or an Araswati might. But Faraday is five years deep into a platonic soulmate ship with Corel, and she knows Apelton smiles like breathing by now. The Apelta smiles, and Apelton smile, and turns towards the door. Nothing happens for several seconds, but then a faint glow builds in the air in front of the door, a glow that continues to grow until it solidifies into a symbol, a silver trident that shines fiercely for a moment longer before shattering. As the trident quenches, so does the alien presence around the door. Faraday gasps and bends, feeling its loss like an unexpected drop in pressure. When she looks back up, the Apelta is standing in front of her again, holding out both hands and lying across their palms, delicate and improbable and lovely, is a paper flower. The price, she says, feeling her nails bite into her palms and not caring. What's the price? The Apelta only smiles, the expression strangely sad, and tips their hands so the flower flits through their fingers and into Faraday's lap. With that, still smiling, they step backwards, fading as they go, until there is only empty air. 
The door is still shut. The door is still shut until it isn't. Stones crack and crumble. The very earth groans. And slowly the hexagon begins to roll to the side, tucking itself away into solid rock. As it does, air rushes out from beyond it, damp and strange and smelling oddly of paper and green things. Faraday rises to her feet, strangely lightheaded, and as she does, small furred hands press into her right thigh. Through it, Laurelie urges, her voice coming to Faraday as if from deep water or across a great distance. We have to go through. They're sending that hard light creature from the training mat. As if on cue, the cavern quakes with the sound of a deafening roar. Faraday blinks once, twice, three times, each little swipe of eyelid bringing her more firmly back into her alignment with the world. No time, says Corel, their tone curt to most but apologetic to Faraday. They hook a clawed hand through the crook of her elbow, hauling her nearly off her feet as they lead the way forwards through the door. They stumble past the threshold and into the mouth of a long, narrow passageway that descends ahead of them in a shallow flight of stone steps. The walls are dark blue-grey and intricately carved, soaring some 40 metres up into imperceptible darkness. Beyond the passageway lies an almost incomprehensibly vast chamber banded by five faint golden sunbeams. And in that chamber, even more incomprehensibly, is a city. Hey, it's Paige Dolby Evans, your game master, host, and resident dog person. I just wanted to say that the Junket podcast wouldn't be possible without the talents of the lovely people behind the characters. That's my wife Leonie as Dr. Faraday Zenith Lewis, Duncan as Corel, Elle as Captain Mitchell Crick, Shona as Schlurp, and Jess as Lorelei Widewanderer. Our show is powered by a modified version of Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. To learn about the custom rulings, mechanics, and aliens that make our game possible, you can visit our website, thejunkitpodcast.com, or just ask us on Twitter at thejunkitpod. Lastly, if you're both willing and able, you can support the show over on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash thejunkitpodcast. That's all from me. See you in a fortnight.